0: Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us, and I, and I do ask that you would grant us the, the gift of belief and the gift of, of faith, that as we come to your word, we would hear it not merely as, as ink on a page, but what it, what it really is. You're living an active Word, pointing to um, just an incredible picture of your grace in this text today, the grace that saves us, the grace that changes us. Grace sustains us to the end, and so we ask, even in texts like this that are loaded with so many of your good promises, it's, we need your, your intervention to believe them and for us to internalize them, and so we ask that you would. You would send the Spirit. Give us soft hearts and, and open ears and eyes that can see rightly. Above all things, what we ask, and this is true for anyone in this room, whether they've been a Christian for a long time, whether they're, they're here and they're just asking questions, whether they haven't been in a church in, in 11 or 12 years, God, whether this is their first Sunday or their thousandth Sunday, God, what all of us need most is that we would leave this place more impressed with King Jesus. All that he has done, all that he promises to do, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, you would come and lift him high, we might draw all of our hearts after him, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to go, Lord willing, through the entire chapter. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Feel free to grab a seat. Well, there is uh, arguably a few things happening in this chapter, wouldn't you say? It's, uh, it might even be hard to track what, what's the logic, what, what line is Paul, the one who helped plant this church in Corinth and is writing this letter, what, what, what line is he taking? And I, I think one of the, the most helpful things is to do a quick primer on the idea of a covenant. We hear this I, language of covenant in this text, and I think this will help understand what's, what's happening here. Covenant means a, a promise a binding agreement between two parties. It's similar to a contract, but it has more relational overtones. And so you might think of something like a marriage covenant, that two parties enter into a, what is designed by God. And obviously in a world of, of thorns and thistles, it doesn't always work out this way, but to be an unbreakable commitment to one another in which you make vows, which are your covenant vows, your promises and pledges, And then with any covenant, there's blessings and curses. There's good things that happen when we are obedient to the vows, and then there's fracture that happens when we are disobedient to them. In the Bible, there are a number of different covenants, these binding agreements between God and and humans. And, And so I won't walk through all of the various covenants, but let me give you the two main categories of covenants in the Bible. There's what's called a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. We see both of these in this chapter. A covenant of works can simply be um, defined or understood as something like, do this and live. Keep these rules and live. Keep these rules. Obey these commands and things will be good for you. Disobey them and and curses will come. 2 Corinthians 3 points to this covenant of works given by God in this illustration with Moses. It talks about this individual Moses who was uh, a leader of God's people thousands of years before this who was the one, if you've heard the story of God's people and slavery in Egypt and them coming out of slavery and the Red Sea parting and, and there's this scene where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he meets with God and he talks with God and God comes and he gives them these commands. He gives them the, the 10 commandments among another of other things, but he gives them these 10 words, things like do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't lie, honor your mother and father, you'll have no other gods besides the true God. So he gives them these commands. And then when Moses would come down from Mount Sinai, what he would do is he would put a veil on his face because as he was communing with God, he began to to glow in such a way. And the Israelites, when Moses came down, were afraid. They didn't want to go near to the mountain because of the, the sheer raw holiness of God. And so they had an intermediary, Moses, who stood before them. He would come down and then give them these commands. You could go back to Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and read more. You could go to Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. It's the the retelling of the law, and it has chapter after chapter after chapter saying, I'm a good God who delivered you out of slavery. This is how I want you to live. And then in Deuteronomy, it goes and it says, here's blessings for obeying this covenant. And here are curses, the outcome of... Of you disobeying this covenant. It's do this and live. I don't think it takes long for us to see a problem with this do this and live covenant. By even looking at some of the phrases in this chapter in verse seven, this is a ministry of death. Or verse nine, a ministry of condemnation to be accused and to stand judged. What's being said, and it's clear, and there's this back and forth that you hear in chapter three, that it, this covenant was called glorious, that it was good and right and beautiful. God's commands are, are to rehumanize us and to help us function well as a society and to, to live our lives before him. But the, but the problem is, if it's do this and live, very quickly we realize, I haven't done it. And I can't do it perfectly. Do this and live only works if you can do it perfectly, which we can't and we haven't. You can't keep God's standards. That's part of what this chapter is saying. You can't keep God's standards. You can't moral your way into forgiveness. You cannot moral your way into the kingdom of heaven. And it's why we need a covenant of grace. A binding promise built on unmerited favor, not upon our personal performance. I love how Matthew Courtney says it very succinct way. Condemnation by the law sets the stage for the gospel. I'll define that in a minute. Sets the stage for the gospel in the form of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace doesn't take away the requirements of obedience to God's law set out in the covenant of works. Rather, it takes away the requirement that this perfect obedience be ours personally. It can be someone else's, which is Christ. Paul is contrasting two covenants in this chapter. He's not saying the old was bad, it was glorious, but he is saying the new is so much more glorious, it makes the old look like it has no brilliance at all. Why? To lead us to Christ. Verses 12 through 16, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when the old is read, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And what it's saying is you continue to look at God's laws and say, okay, I can do them. I can do them. I can can, can make my greatest attempts at performing them. But but here's what happens in verse 16. Here's his turn. But when one turns to the Lord. It's looking at the law and saying God's law is right and good. His standards are just and, and good. They're good for society. They're good for me. They're good for my friends. They're good for family. They're good for relationships. They orient me to God in the right way, but I cannot do it. Who will save me? Who, who will do it for me? And that's when we begin to look at Christ, and that's the story of the gospel. See, the story of the gospel is that God in his infinite generosity came, became a baby. He came into this world to actually obey the covenant of works perfectly. Christ never misstepped. You know, we're coming up on Christmas, this celebration, this annual reminder that God came to dwell among us. He came to dwell among us in part to live the way we were meant to live, to fulfill all of the just and right laws and requirements of God's law that we failed to to perform and obey. And then he goes to a cross where he dies in the place. He takes the curse that we deserve, that we might receive the blessings that he earned. We are wrapped. The Bible uses language like this. God made him who knew no sin to be sent for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Not just forgiven, but, but righteous means to be positively um, positioned before a holy God. That's why this pe- chapter says the ministry of righteousness. See, this is also, this covenant of works is meant to lead us to a place of saying, I can't do it, but there's one who has and that the move is to turn towards Christ, to turn from our attempts and to turn towards Christ and to say, Jesus has done it for me. I'm gonna throw all of my faith on him, all of my lot on him. We are given his righteousness. And then we, we're given what verse 17 promises, this beautiful word, freedom. In, in the context, freedom from death, freedom from condemnation, Freedom to have a bold hope with an unveiled face before the glory of the Lord. To know that we're not standing before God according to our ups and downs of our performance, but only in the perfect work of Christ, that we are fully saved and fully justified and fully righteous all because of him. And then as the the text goes on, but it's freedom is not all that this covenant of grace offers. One of the other things it speaks to is transformation. Transformation. That's the interplay between verses 16 and 17 and 18. We have freedom. And then you get to verse 18. It says, and now we, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. So here's what the covenant of grace does, is it shows us our need for Christ. It gives us Christ. It places us in Christ. And then it says, one day you can be like Christ. There's a a poem, uh, likely, it's falsely attributed to John Bunyan. He was a 17th century pastor and the author of a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, But it captures this contrast that's being made in this chapter. I'm going to do three different versions of this from three different sources. I'm not sure who's the original, so I'll just do all three of them. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news, the gospel brings it bids us fly and gives us wings. That did not originate with Red Bull. Um, (laughs) what, What what John is saying, John Bunyan is saying here is that the law is saying, do this and live. And John is saying, I can't. It gives me neither feet nor hands. I don't, it doesn't give me the power. It's telling me what is right, but it doesn't give me the power to do that which is right. But then the gospel does this. By the work of the Spirit, it bids me fly and actually gives me the wings to do it. Or Ralph Erksine, a rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when the gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Or John Barrage, to run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands, a sweeter thing the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. I don't know who said it first. I don't think, the one I don't think it was, was John Bunyan. But they're all saying the same thing. We are unable to obey God's commands. And so Christ came to obey them for us. And then change us so that we might be able to obey his commands in a way that honors him. By the power of the Spirit. If you look at this chapter, we we could say this is a chapter that's highlighting the work of the Spirit. Seven times in this chapter, the Spirit is featured as the the agent that's moving and changing and empowering and transforming. New power to become a new people. This next Thursday, I'm flying to Omaha for a meeting, um, flying out of uh, SeaTac at 7.30 a.m. Thursday morning. And so I opened up Maps on my iPad to try to calculate out when do I need to leave to get there by a certain time. I love this feature with Maps now where you can you can put down, I want to I go on this date, and with predictive algorithms and all these things from traffic patterns that will tell you when you have to leave, so I want to arrive there at the airport at this particular time, and then it basically calculates you need to leave your house at 3.57 a.m., and so after cursing for a second, I was then thankful again for, for maps, because it tells me exactly what to do. It says you're gonna leave your house, you're gonna take a left onto U Street, you're gonna go down to Samish, and you're gonna take another left, and then you're gonna merge on the freeway, and I mean, it, it lays all these things out. It tells me exactly how to get there, but here's what maps can't do. It can't get me there. It can tell me the right route to take. It can tell me when to leave. It can tell me when I'll show up. If something happens along the way, it can reroute my, my path to get to the desired destination, but it gives me no power to get there. I need need a car that works. I need an engine. I need a a tank of of gas. I need tires that are inflated. I I need a vehicle in which to get to the airport. When I get to the airport, to get to Omaha, I need an airplane that works. And I need someone who knows how to fly the airplane. But but I I can't just get myself, I can't will myself there in the amount of time that I have to get there. What's offered in the new covenant by the Spirit is the power to actually get there. The law tells us the right path. God's commands are good. I love how 1 John says it, and God's commands are not burdensome. They're meant to bring life to us. But in and of ourselves, we just don't have the power to do it. And so this covenant of grace comes to give us the spirit that we might walk by the spirit. I love how Ray Orland says it. We are no longer imprisoned within our own narrow potential, but are now opened by and cared for and enveloped within the all-providing all-forgiving, all-restoring love of God. Our ultimate destiny is now determined by the transforming power of the Spirit, not by the self-defeating failures of the flesh. I want to reread that. Our ultimate destiny is now determined by the transforming power of the Spirit, not by the self-defeating failures of the flesh. Our whole existence used to be limited to the flesh, what we could achieve out of our own native moral capacities. Oh, and it's not that we can't achieve anything. It's not that we have no agency. It's just saying that we don't have the power to do what the Spirit can do. We hear this promise of a new covenant all throughout what's called the, the, uh, the, the, the Old Testament or the, 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 the first covenant, the first two-thirds of your Bible. So it's not like this is something that just came on the scenes with Christ. It got brought to revelation with Christ, but it was God's design always. It wasn't like it was God's second plan because we failed to follow the law. It was always God's plan by grace to save us and to change us. We see it in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. God, through the Spirit, writes his law on our hearts. This text talks about a law written on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai with Moses. God does something different. He puts it in us deeply. Ezekiel 36, 25 and following, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. From all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I love this next phrase. I, just, I pray this all the time and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God, just cause me to do it. God, would you just change me? Would you remind me of the power that you've given to actually walk this path that I really want to, but in my flesh I keep failing? Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. At this time, circumcision, this outward sign, but it was supposed to represent an inward reality and what God is saying in the new covenant by the spirit that we will become attuned and alive to Christ in ways that we never were in some external sense. This would be an inward reality. We have this new covenant and what it does in this text, it makes them new creations. We see the reality of this change in what Paul calls the Corinthians here in verses two and three. He says, You're a letter written by Christ. At this time, what would happen is a speaker would go into a new city or community, just like now. They, they would often bring letters of recommendations from other leaders and other students. And when they come into a new place, they'd say, Hey, here's some letters of recommendation. I'm a good teacher. Look at, look at these people that I've influenced. And what Paul is saying here is, I don't need a written letter because I have you says, your very lives are a living testimony to the transforming work of the Spirit. Visible testimony of the power of the gospel. Um, As some of you know, I've said this a few times, I am a Instagram lurker. I think that's the the phrase, uh, if you look at the people I follow, I follow, there's like three ultra runners I follow and the rest of the people I follow are you. So it's people in this church that let me follow you. Anyone that doesn't, when I request and you say no, I just figure you, you got some stuff you don't want me to see. So <laughs> just just saying, time to clean it up. Um, just joke, just joking. I totally joking. I don't care. Um, but, but, I, but I do it because I just love to, it gives me one way to just Stay uh, in the loop on stuff that 's happening in your lives. So I love seeing birthday celebrations and trips and all these things. One of the Instagram accounts that I follow is, is my neighbor, and uh, she 's part of our church and it 's been really fun to watch a few years ago I started seeing these these posts of of paintings and sketches and i don't i can 't remember we were talking about it a while ago, and i can 't remember if she, she was like restarting or she was like pushing further into it, but she has just been painting like crazy. And it's been amazing to watch. And I was, I loved scrolling through her feed and just seeing like the quality of the work is stunning. Like it's absolutely so impressive. And it keeps getting better as she like hones these skills and she works on new aspects and new techniques and new styles and new subjects. Like I'm really blown away by the quality of what she's doing. This chapter is saying we're to be like that. We're to become like these masterpieces over time that get remade and refashioned by the master artist, to be changed from one degree of glory to another. Let me give you um, an idea of what that future glory will will be. You'll look like Christ. We won't become divine, but it says we'll be transformed into his image, the, the, the most fully alive human that's ever been. Particularly in his resurrection. I love how 1 John 3 2 says it. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's hard to even get a sense of what that means and what that looks like because we're here. But what these verses and what in, in 1 John, this verse in, in, in 2 Corinthians is saying is there, there's a future coming where you will be transformed by grace. I love how Ray Ortlund says, this is a longer quote, but I think it's worth reading. I'm going to probably even, I'm going to try to read it slow. God is promising that you're going to be better than you were at your best. Better by far. You have never experienced yet what you are going to be. You and I have never experienced real life. We have seen it because whatever God did in raising Jesus on the first Easter Sunday, he will do for us too. We will become invulnerable to death and disease and pain and aging. No more medications. No more walkers, no more arthritis, no more cancer or headaches or hormone therapy or MS or sexually transmitted diseases, no sinful urges raging within, no possibility of injury. Instead, full energy, full capacities, full intensity, full control, full alertness, acute sensitivity to everything worthy in an atmosphere of unmixed holy joy, forever and ever. That is the triumph of God's spirit in all of God's children. What you and I are is hardly the consummation of our existence. It is the merest beginning. Consider the goodness and power of God. Let's listen again to the gospel and drink in with thankful joy the promise of God. Nothing is more certain than this. God will keep his good word to you for all that it is worth. For he has given you the pledge of his spirit. That's the that's the, the destination. That's the ultimate picture of this chapter. That's that's what from one degree of glory to the other, that one day you will be like Christ. All the urges, all the frustrations, all the vents, all the anger, all the heartache, all the sickness, all the disease, gone. And what's replaced is something glorious is glorious. It's perfect timing for this next point. (laughs) I haven't read Charles Dickens' The Great Expectation, but my wife is an English teacher, so it's the next best thing. I haven't read the book. I also have the internet, and I have Spark Notes. Anyone feel me? Uh The book centers on an orphan named Pip, and the title pretty much captures the, the thematic arc of the novel. We have all of these great expectations, that are often met with great disappointments. It's a book full of hope and and hurts, of poverty and and wealth, of love and loneliness and, and love, of great expectations and ongoing letdowns. And it captures the tension that probably many of us feel when we think of the grand promise of this new covenant. The Bible uses language that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. And you read that and you go, amazing. And then you go, yell at your kids. You go, what's going on? And you get angry at the person that's driving slower in front of you. Or someone messes up your coffee. Or you go, I, I'm supposed... I'm supposed to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Look what I'm supposed to become, and then look at what I am. And there's this dissonance that happens between the grand promises of the new covenant and the raw reality of the everyday struggles that we have to change. Let me restate where we're going and then bring it back. The ESV study Bible notes say this. What we will be means having glorified bodies that will never be sick or grow old or die and being completely without sin No one like that has yet appeared on earth except Christ himself after the resurrection. We shall be like him. In eternity, Christians will be morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood or error, physically without weakness or imperfections, and filled continually with the Holy Spirit. Anyone want that? That sounds stunning. That sounds stunning. And so far away. And so far from reality. And that's why we have this house rule. One degree of change is still change. And maybe if you know it, you can help me with the rest. And worth celebrating. It guards us against the disappointments that settle in when we're not making the progress as fast as we want to. And we want to. I don't know any, I do not know anybody, Christian, non-Christian, who doesn't want to improve and be better for themselves, for others. I don't know anyone. I also, I, I don't think I know anyone that's actually growing at the pace they want. I know a lot of us stumbling. It's like, I, I, I think our, our progress of growth, it's like the path of a butterfly, just up and down and over and our or a bumblebee, zzz, you know, I don't even know how it flies. And buzzes around. eventually it gets to the flower. But man, that journey is arduous. One degree of change is still change and worth celebrating. It tend, it's to capture something of the tension between the lofty declarations and God's word about who we are and what we'll become and the right now reality of how far some of us, well, all of us still have to go. Paul was reminding me of, of this illustration he used a while ago in a sermon, but the, the show F- uh, Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines. Um, Shiplap, anyone? Mm-hmm. Right, it just made barn chic the, the, the move for everyone, love it, I, and, uh, but they, they really came on the scene on the whole Magnolia thing. I mean, Waco was like cool now. <laughs> Who thought Waco, Texas would be cool? Um, But the premise of the show is that a couple is trying to buy a house, and they go to these like really rotten houses, and they make something just absolutely dazzling with them. I mean, they're able to look at at, at houses that are just like look unsalvageable. And they go in there, and they they have this this vision of, of what it can become. And there's a lot of parallels between that show and and our change and growth, because if you watch the show, I haven't watched it in a bunch of years, but I've watched a a few episodes. And... um and, you know, they go in and it's like, okay, we're going to tear down this wall. And then they go and they tear down, they open up the wall and they go, oh, we can't tear down that wall because it's a load-bearing beam. And so now we got to bring this other thing in. And, and, oh, wait, now there's mold. Now we got to have hazmat suits and pull this out. No, we're going to pull this. Oh, no. We, like, the electricity actually is going to kill you. And so, like, they just, like, everything they do requires something else to be done. And maybe it feels that way in your, like, change is painful and change is hard. And you open one closet and you realize, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize how big that storage room was and how much junk is actually in there. And you have to start doing the work of of changing. And it's really, really difficult. And at the end of every show, the, the couple that is having this house fixed for, they show up and, and they put this like giant billboard in the front of the house. And so they parade them out there and they got their eyes closed or something so they can't see it. And then at some point they do the big reveal. They say, okay, show the house. And they, they pull the, 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 the blockade away and they look at this house that's been frustrated. they're like, that's incredible. That's, that's incredible. But in the show, it takes seven days. For us it takes a lifetime. And all the the veil like the the billboard will be removed and you will become, but not until you see Christ. One day we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And until that day, one degree. And one degree. And one degree. One of the big challenges uh, in transformation and change is to not grow discouraged. Or to, get, to give up or to get angry, angry with yourself, or angry with others. See, all these house rules are meant for all of us, that one degree of change is worth change, or is worth is still changing and worth celebrating. that's true for you. It's also true for your kids. It's true for your spouse, it's true for your friends. it's true for your roommates. It's true for your colleagues. I love this line by Charles Spurgeon. "By perseverance, the snail reached the ark. That's the sanctification mascot. We're snail, like snail. You're not snails. You're made in the image of God, but that's about the pace we go. This house rule tries to reinforce the pace and normalize the pace. If we only celebrated when there was off-the-charge mega transformation, we'd almost never celebrate anything. According to Bono, he says this, your nature is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I've heard people who have had life-changing, miraculous turnarounds, people set free from addiction after a single prayer, relationships saved where both parties let go and let God. But it was not like that for me. For all that I was lost, I am found, it is probably more accurate to say I was really lost, I'm a little less so at the moment, (laughs) and then a little less and a little less again. That to me is the spiritual life, the slow reworking and rebooting, rebooting the computer at regular intervals reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me into a better image. It has taken years though, and it's not over yet. One degree of change is still changed and worth celebrating. 2018, I decided it was finally time. Uh, it's probably September of 2018 that I was like, I need to lose some weight. And my problem at the time was, is for sure, it wasn't exercise. I was running and lifting weights uh, fairly regularly. Uh, It was nutrition. I just like to eat. And so I ate a lot. And so I decided I needed to cut back. And it was hard. And the first week was really hard. And the 38th week, it was still hard. (laughs) Just to change the habits and and the patterns of, of what I was doing. And it took a long time. And it was met with discouragements along the way, including times to be encouraged. I remember, you know, the first week you out, you're like, okay, I'm going to really adjust some things here. And so you do that for a week and then you jump on, on the scale to see how much progress you've made and it's higher. I <laughs> well, oh, great, that was worth it. But I was just like, you know, I really want to do this to get healthier, make it easier to run, all these things. So, so I just kept going. And, and over about 40 weeks, I averaged a pound and a half a week is what I ended up. I lost 60 pounds. That was encouraging. It was also discouraging that I had 60 pounds to lose. But, but I lost 60 pounds. Uh, but good news, I've found 17 of them back since then. So <laughs> I'm, I'm on the search. I'm looking. Where'd they go? But even that is actually a good illustration of of growth in Christ. Man, you take steps forward. Sometimes it feels like you end up worse than you began. But you just keep going. One degree of change is still change. One degree of glory. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. and, And all the little incremental changes are worth celebrating. Any of the setbacks, guess what? You can start again. You can start again. David Pallison says it like this, change is moving in the right direction. It's not about speed, distance, or perfection, but direction. One degree of change is still change and worth celebrating. Let me give you one more encouragement, and then I'm going to give you just one practical practical handle from this. Um, Think again about what was said in verses 2 and 3, that the Corinthians were this letter of commendation written by Christ through the Spirit, that they were a living testimony to the transforming work of the gospel. Okay, now think about that in light of what's widely said about the Corinthian church, that they were one of arguably the messiest and worst churches in the Bible. So what Paul is doing is seeing this group of really raw, really immature, really messed up Christians is a living testimony of the power of Christ to transform us. That is deeply encouraging to me. That Paul can look at this group of people that are really stumbling and really struggling and saying, You are my letter of recommendation. You are the witness that the gospel is real with all of your sin and all of your mess ups. Paul celebrates a degree of change in their lives because it's real, because they've done 16, they've turned to the Lord. Because Jesus is perfect and we are His, because Jesus is righteous for us because we are already declared righteous in love because of Jesus from that place. We get to work out our salvation. I love how Rankin-Wilborn says it. God does not love us to the degree that we are like Christ. Rather, God loves us to the degree that we are in Christ. And that's always 100%. We get to work out already knowing that we are deeply Next week, the house rule that we're going to look at, Grace and Grit, Our Best Friends, is very much connected to this one. This, but I, So I'm going to do a, more of the like, how do we do this? Um, this week is more, God, this is the destination God is taking us, and let's have the right expectations as we go on this journey of change. Um, today is really more about just knowing that it's possible and guaranteed, um, but I do want to end with one practical handle, and it's do what this text says. This is the biggest takeaway if you want to change. If anyone does, just behold Christ. Over and over and over and over and over again. Beholding. Like we can look in mirrors and we can examine ourselves and, and we should, but actually the word beholding means to reflect. And it says to reflect what you want to become, not what you are. To reflect Christ. Gary. Mac, in his book Mind Gym, says this. He says, don't look where you don't want to go. (laughs) The inverse, so look at where you want to go. You look at Christ. I've already read this quote a few weeks ago, but I want to read it again. Robert Murray McShane. I think this gives us maybe a good formula for change. Good ratio for where we look. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And no, I mean, if we pause it, isn't that what we do? Like, we, we see the things that need change, and what we do is we, we keep looking at how we failed. As a dad, as a mom, as a friend, as a boss, as a Christian. And, and McShane's encouragement is, man, it's real. It's not that it's not real. It's not that there's not things that need to go, but look at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10. Looks at Christ, he is altogether lovely, lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Fill his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. One degree of change is still change. And we're celebrating. In you, in others, in anyone. One day we'll be like him. For we'll see him him as he is. Until that day, one degree. Keep going. Keep celebrating. Keep looking at Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, the promised picture of what will become through faith in Christ. So help us to do, whether for the first time today or for the 10,000th time, to do what this text says, to turn to the Lord. To just keep turning to him. To turn to him in faith, to turn towards him in confession, to turn towards him in dependence, to turn towards him in gratitude, to turn towards him in, uh, for wisdom, to turn towards him to be re-loved again and to be reminded again. Just help us keep turning towards him. Thank you that this work ultimately is guaranteed by you for our good and for your glory. This week, make it practical for us is we see change, help us celebrate As we see a slowness to change, help us remember. As we see us take steps back, give us the grace by the Spirit to start again and then to celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen.